Leviticus chapter 24 this evening. Our journey through the Bible. Again, the book of Leviticus has a theme of holiness and the holiness of God. And so he continues that theme and continues to instruct the Lord does the children of Israel on the fact that he is a holy God and how that they can properly represent him uh, as his people, as a holy people in a world that is unholy. And I heard someone say about chapter 24 that it divides into three sections. Number one, the providing of holy oil, the preparation of holy bread, and the protection of God's holy name. And uh, I, uh, I, since I can't improve on that, I just stole it. It's very, very good. I mean, there's three P's right in a row like that. It's great for memory. And it's also a very accurate way uh, to lay out the chapter. I, have, I like anything that helps me to remember or organize something in my mind. I felt that that did that. So first we begin with the providing of the holy oil. And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel, these are the children of Israel, that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives, for the light to make the lamps burn continually. And outside the veil of the testimony, in the tabernacle of meeting, that's where the, the menorah or the lampstand was, one of the three furnishings in the holy place, right outside of the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle. And uh, the only source of light in, inside the tabernacle was the, this menorah or this lampstand. So the children of Israel were to bring the pure oil that was to be used in keeping it lit. And then Aaron was to be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps of the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. And so as we looked at this back in the book of Exodus, we saw how it is that uh, what the lampstand was, its place, what it was made of, solid gold. And, and it is a, uh, again, it, it provided the only light within the tabernacle is a picture of Jesus as the light of the world. He declared himself to be uh, the light of the world. He declared us to be the light of the world also as Christians because we're filled with the same oil, the same oil of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that when uh, Jesus... Uh, lived in his, his public ministry, his 33 and a half years that he was uh, on the earth prior to his crucifixion and his uh, resurrection and then his ascension into heaven. Everything that he did in his public ministry, he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. He, 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 wasn't, he never ceased to be divine the entire time. But he operated in the power of the Holy Spirit the same power of the Holy Spirit that's available to us. And that's why he told us that we're the light of the world because we have that same Holy Spirit available to us. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said, and when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, he said, you'll be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we are the light of the world. The body of Christ is, is the light of, of the world. And so 
we, we do it by that same power of the Spirit. Now, one of the things that's interesting here in all of this is that the supply, and this is what we're told here that's uh, additional to what we uh, found out in Exodus, the supply of the pure oil for the lampstand, it was to come from the people. And, and then the high priest was then responsible to keep the lampstand or the little cups filled with oil and the wicks there and all and, and keep it lit and make sure that it would, would never ever go out. So what you have here is this beautiful picture. The Lord made sure that both the people and the leaders, they each had a very necessary part in keeping this light of, of the menorah or the, of the lampstand lit there in the holy place. No one was to leave it up to somebody else. Everyone was to do their part, both the, the people and the priest. And uh, there's a beautiful verse that brings this out as it relates to uh, God working through our lives in, in the body of Christ. It, of course, the ministry is, every single Christian is a minister. We're all called. You are gifted in ways that I am not and that others are not. Uh, God has put a very... A beautiful package together in your life for exactly what he's called you to do and be for how you're to shine the light of Jesus in in this world and he's done that for everyone so the the people aren't to look to the leaders to pull this off and the leaders aren't to look and say well you know we just teach and do these things and and but the real shining of the light that's left to the people everybody had a has a place as Christians all of us have a place in uh, allowing Jesus' light and his life, his purity to be, uh, to glow out and, and to, uh, to light out into, into this uh, dark world and, and to shine. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, Paul said, that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And so he likens the body of Christ to a body. Every body part has its important place in the function of that body, for that body to be what it's supposed to be. And every part has to do its share in order for that to be the case. And so an Old Testament truth, a New Testament truth uh, also, even in the details of how the oil was supplied uh, for the, the uh, lampstand. Then uh, the showbread in verse 5, and you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Uh, the 12 cakes representing the uh, 12 tribes of Israel. Again, we saw this in Exodus chapter 25. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. Or, or loaf, and you shall set them in two rows, and they would be on the table of showbread, which was a, a, a furnishing, one of the three furnishings in the holy place. They were to put it, be put in two rows, and I like that. They weren't just to be kind of randomly thrown on there or anything. There's a right way to do things, decent and in order, and it sounds like the Lord's into symmetry too. So you asymmetrical people, you'll you'll be improved by the time you get into heaven. We like you for the variety that you provide and, and the amusement uh, that you provide to the rest of us, but um, you'll be cured of it soon enough. We know enough not to take you too seriously. 
so anyway, two rows, six in a row, on a pure golden table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. And so what they would do is, this bread would be changed out every Sabbath day, the 12 loaves, and they would bake 12 new loaves. They would be put on the place. Then a piece from the loaf would be, uh, uh, from the old loaves would be pulled away. It would be mixed with frankincense, and it would be burned on the altar. And so that's what the frankincense uh, was about. And you shall, um, verse 8, every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. And so the 12 tribes again represent, or the 12 loaves represent the 12 uh, tribes. And because these 12 loaves were in the holy place, right outside of the Holy of Holies, which represented the presence of God. It was a reminder to the children of Israel that they were always in the presence of, of God, that they, uh, they always before me is how he puts it there, and that they were always that close to him. Now in the Middle East, uh, the table is always a symbol of fellowship, and so it reminded the people of the constant ability to commune with God. He's that close. He not only dwells uh, with us, but for us as Christians, uh, He dwells in us. I mean, we have the most intimate fellowship you can have with God this side of heaven, and it's all because of, of Jesus. It's very significant here, and again, He gives us a, uh, this is not exactly like He described it in Exodus, in that He gives us a little further insight uh, here, and so it must be important. Very interesting to note that the bread could only be eaten by the priests. The seventh day when they would put it, bring in the new bread, that bread was not to be thrown away into the garbage or for, given away for people to eat. It was to be eaten by the priests. And they were to eat that bread in the presence, in fellowship, because with the high priest, who would eat, uh, eat it also. So this speaks of beautiful picture of the Lord's Supper. Each of us as Christians, we are priests, and, uh, and, and so we get to enjoy uh, with our, our high priest Jesus regularly the Lord's Supper. And uh, in, in our ministry here, you have the priests. They're ministering to the Lord. What sustains them in that ministry with the Lord? The encouragement of the high priest, the sustenance that God gives. What keeps us moving forward in our service to the Lord, uh, living for Him, being a light for Him. It is uh, the encouragement that comes from our high priest. No one will last, I don't think, any length of time in serving the Lord uh, w without intimacy with, with God and not, ha and not make an impact in the world. It all comes out of that relationship. It all comes out of that fellowship with the Lord, the personal relationship. We'll never rise for any length of time above our personal relationship with the Lord. And that's one of the things that the Lord's Supper does is it brings us back to remember that this is all about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Because you can forget about Jesus even in serving the Lord. There are a lot of motivations for serving the Lord. There can be a lot of selfish motivations. And this keeps us focused on our high priest and communing with him as we're 
uh, living for him and, and then serving him. Now in verse 10, the protection of the holy name of God. Here's the incident. A son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian. So they're coming out of Egypt and so probably wasn't super unusual for there to be kind of a mixed marriage this way between the children of Israel uh, and an Egyptian. So here you have uh, a, 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 a young man who is, uh, has an uh, Israelite mother and the father is Egyptian. And he went out among the children of Israel and this Israelite woman's son and the man, a man of Israel, uh, both, both parents being children of Israel, they fought each other in the camp. And so some kind of a big fight, probably physical and in nature, broke out. And the Israelite uh, woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed and so they brought it to Moses. The mother's name was Shemelith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. So a fight breaks out. He curses in the midst of this fight. And in his cursing, he blasphemes the name uh, of, of the Lord. Now he does more than just uh, uh, speak in the name of God. That was lawful. It's more than he didn't just curse or swear or use profanity. Uh, that was bad enough, but it wasn't as serious as what, what he did. Uh, this is more than just calling for God to curse the man he's fighting with. You know, God cursed this man, and that's not what happened here. He cursed the name of the Lord. And in doing so, he cursed the Lord himself. In, in the Old Testament, we, we give people names as kind of an identification to differentiate them from the other six billion people on the face of the planet. And so that when we call their name across a crowded room or something, they'll recognize we're talking to them and turn, get their attention. Uh, to name someone under the whole culture of the Jews, uh, a name was more than just a, 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 an identification tag that was given to them. A name represented the person. That's how they, they viewed a name. And, and so in cursing the name of the Lord, he has cursed the nature of God. He has cursed the Lord himself, who and what the Lord uh, is. And so he calls for a curse, somehow a curse against the Lord, something like may such and such and you insert a terrible thing happen to the Lord or, you know, curse the Lord, curse Yahweh or some kind of thing that he would say maybe a, even a stronger kind of way. And that's what he does here. Well, <clears throat> the response of the children of Israel is he's brought now to uh, Moses and all. They put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. This is the first time they've run into this. They didn't know what to do. So they're seeking the mind of the Lord. What does God think about what's just happened here? Now they knew from the law of Moses in Exodus that it was forbidden to use the name of the Lord in vain. But what's the punishment for that? And did the law of Moses apply to a mixed parent situation. There's some things that they didn't know. And to Moses' credit, and give him credit, when he didn't know what the mind of the Lord was on that, he didn't bluff. He just said, we don't know what the mind of the Lord is on this. Let's seek him and find out what it is that he has to say. You know, life is like that. Life... Have you ever noticed that life is just kind of unfolding you know, 24 hours at a time, and you're hitting things all the time that you say, wow, what do we do here? 
I mean, I, I, we kind of are living right here at this moment, I mean, most of us, in the room. And uh, so we've been able to process life thus far in the light of the Word of God, test it by the Word, make our decisions based on the Word. But tomorrow comes and we hit something like, wow, I never thought I'd see that. I don't know what to do there. And, and then we have to seek the Lord and seek His Word for how do we handle ourselves in this situation. And uh, that's not to bluff when you don't know. As a husband in a marriage, don't bluff. I don't have the mind of the Lord in this. I need to find out what it is. Or as parents, as we hit these new things. And that's what they do. They, they're, now they're going to seek the Lord for His direction and His mind. And so uh, then all who had... Uh, so they they uh, took him into custody and the Lord did have a mind related to this the Lord spoke to Moses saying take outside the camp him who is cursed and then let all who heard him the eyewitnesses let them lay their hands on his head and then let all of the congregation stone him if you're going to carry so this blaspheming the Lord in this way and cursing God in this way capital crime but he wanted the accusers to be right there, lay their hands on him when the execution began because they had to stand. He had a right to, to, to face his accusers and, uh, and to stand there and, and hold to their word and to their testimony and then let all of the congregation stone him. And these shall speak to the children of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death all the congregation shall surely stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land, so Gentiles and, and Jews alike. And then the, when, the Lord, when he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. And so the pronouncement that this now was a capital crime. Well, God has a, a, obviously a zero tolerance uh, for this, this kind of thing for his name and for him to be spoken of in, in, uh, not just in a, in a casual way, but in a, in a way that's derogatory toward him or, or openly curses him. And, and so the Lord, obviously, he didn't want one tiny little smallest amount of this attitude <laughs> to be introduced among his people at all. And it applied to anyone that lived within the borders of Israel. You, can, you were Gentile, come you know, from Ethiopia or uh, come from Italy or come from anywhere and you came and settled into, Is, into the land of Israel under the law of Moses, then you had to respect that law. It was for Jew and Gentile living in, in the land. So God is clearly wanting to nip this kind of thing at the bud. This self-willed rebellion is very, very dangerous. But nobody thinks anything of it today, do they? Because if this man blasphemes God, gets up and says whatever he wants about God and blasphemes Him and, and all of this, what will the next generation do? They'll do worse. And then what will the generation do after that? They'll do even more worse. And the problem is, is that we look at it, sometimes people can, can struggle with it and they can say, well, boy, we understand murder being a capital crime, but I mean blaspheming God a capital crime? But which one of them does the greater damage in the eyes of God? Not minimizing murder, 
but the consequences are at least temporal. To blaspheme God and then to lead the generation behind you even to greater kind of blasphemy against God and to sense a, a freedom to do what you've done and more, that has eternal consequences. Because that's the kind of thing that turns people away from God. God is misrepresented. They say, I don't want to know a God like that. I don't want to, you know, we can do whatever we want with God or, or anything like this. And then people's eternities are at stake. And so God just nips the whole thing right at, at, at the bud. You know, we live in a country that um, we don't know where this is going. Because we are... We are right in the middle, and I don't know where the middle is. But we haven't hit a place where one generation outdoing the other generation in terms of wickedness, in terms of unrighteousness by God's standard, in terms of a freedom to just blaspheme God and say whatever they want to say about God. That, that free fall, we, we don't even know that we're even near hitting bottom on that. Because we're just seeing generation after generation worse and worse and worse and worse. Where does it lead? Where does it lead? And will anyone want to live in a country like that? I will tell you where it leads. It will lead the same place it led the children of Israel into captivity to the Assyrians and to the Babylonians. It leads to bondage and it leads to destruction. That's where it leads. It doesn't matter what the gross national product of a nation is. It doesn't ma matter what kind of military they have. It doesn't matter what kind of business uh, expertise they have. That's where it leads. When the, when the moral base of the country uh, collapses because of a disrespect for the true and the living God, you, you end up with hell on earth. And that's exactly what's going to happen in the Great Tribulation for the, the whole wide world. So where does God draw the line? He said, wow, that's so, so, so hard. He's so harsh there. Where do you draw the line? You draw the line in the third generation? How hard is it to reel the whole thing back at that point? How hard would it be to reel back our nation back to a morality that existed? I don't say in terms of experience, uh, what people were actually doing physically with their lives, but at least the definition of right and wrong. How hard would it be back to take this back to the 1930s and 40s? You said it'd be an uproar, it'd be impossible to do. We're not a theocracy, I understand that, is, is the United States of America. But the further it's allowed to go, the harder it is to take control of it again. So the Lord just steps in and says, I know how to deal with it. You just erase it as it shows up. And if anyone is so filled with their own self-importance that they're willing to elevate that uh, and their self-expression above the health and the spiritual eternity of an entire nation, I don't have a problem with silencing their voice. That's what he does. And for me, I don't have a problem with it. But I'm born again now. So I have a desire to live that kind of life. And I have a respect for God. And I have a respect for, for his word and for his standard. So no man has a right to do that, to blaspheme God in that way, wow. I hope everyone in the entertainment industry in the United States of America is saved, <laughs> doesn't face the judgment. Think, I mean, just think about how free people are to just 
portray him, say the worst things about him, misrepresent him. I don't even want to get into public education. But it, it's just it's terrible, and it's a big, big deal. And God uses this incident in the Old Testament to just let, let him know what a big deal that it is. What if God just opened up our eyes just for five minutes to just show us the price that the world is paying because of it, its protection of the right to blaspheme God. God's going to take care of it. I don't think we should, you know, we can't take this in our hands and, and, and do this kind of thing. But you look at the, 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 the uh, what would the world be like if his righteousness, who he was, his righteous standard was the thing that was extolled and honored and, and respected versus tearing that down and fighting against it all of the time. You see, what the world would be on one hand uh, under that, the beauty of that, and then what it, it, it is uh, on a daily basis because of its blasphemy against him. And God looks at it and says, I see the casualties every day all over the world. I see what happens to children all over the world. I see what happens to old people all over the world because of, of this kind of thing. And so he puts it out. He said, zero tolerance for this. And whoever puts, kills any man uh, shall surely be put to death. And so capital punishment uh, related to murder, not talking about accidental death or manslaughter. It's talking about uh, deliberate uh, premeditated murder. Now this, this law goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 9 verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood by, his, uh, by man, his blood shall be shed for in the image of God he made man. So he holds tight to this capital punishment uh, for, uh, for murder. And whoever kills an animal shall make it good animal for animals. So restitution was to occur. If you killed a, your neighbor's a animal and uh, whatever it, it might be, you had to repay that uh, exactly. And one ox of the same condition, same age, same shape for the ox that you killed or whatever or horse or mule or whatever it, it might be. So restitution related to animals. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor uh, as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he has caused disfigurement of a man, so it shall be done to him. So he's lying in wait. He's got a club in his hand, jumps out from behind a tree, and he... Uh, proceeds to beat a guy within an inch of his of his uh, of death, and and what was the punishment for that? Equal, right across, and and one of these things of this whole eye for eye, tooth for tooth thing. Three three reasons for it. Number one, to establish a very strong sense of law and order in the nation of Israel, to put a fear of God and a fear of of law and order in the hearts and minds of criminals. And the second reason for it was eye for eye, tooth for tooth, was in order that no um, sentence that would be meted out for a crime against another person, that it wouldn't be too lenient where you would uh, give a hand for an eye. And then what happens with the population of a nation where the sentences are too lenient? They're going to be tempted to take the law into their own hands, and God didn't want that. It's also a protection against sentences that were too strong where you would take an eye for a hand. And that was very strong, a very strong kind of thing in that culture in those days, the surrounding nations, 
where they thought nothing of, okay, you do this to me, I'm going to do twice to you. And God said, no, we don't want to run the nation that way. It'll be eye for an eye and, and a tooth uh, for a tooth. And so this was the, the way that God wanted in terms of these you know, other kinds of laws of assault and how, how this, you know, the sentencing was to be. It was to be guided by that. And every once in a while you'll you know, drive down the road or something and read somebody's uh, bumper sticker. And it's hardly anything uh, except network news. It's more... Uh, uh, irritating sometimes and to read bumper stickers but I do it anyway I'm incurable and uh, sometimes you read some uh, really good ones but every once in a while I'll see you know one that says something like this an eye for an eye leaves everyone blind so they're just you know they're slamming the Old Testament and slamming the law of Moses and the whole thing and you say you know I mean it really sounds yeah that's right if we do an eye for an eye, we're going to all end up blind. We've got to stop this kind of, of thing. You, you carry it out, you won't want to live in a country that, you know... Bumper sticker philosophy is shallow philosophy in, in, in general. So it, it really sounds good on a bumper sticker, but it doesn't work out so well in real life in this fallen world. Because if you do it that way, then what you're going to end up with is all of the good people with their eyes gouged out and all of the bad people with their sight. Wake up! What world are you living in? <laughs> Oh, listen, I don't want to take your eye out. Gouge my other one out too. You know, and then we'll be at the mercy of evil every, uh, everywhere. So God's a God of law and order. Old Testament, New Testament. People think, wow, that's very strong there. I'm glad that we're in the New Testament. And we don't really care. Uh, we're not as strong there. It is Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. talks very much about law and order. Um, forces that are in, in, uh, uh, in place within a country to protect its, its citizens from crime and, and uh, anarchy within the borders of, of the land and from invasion from without. And, and, and uh, the Lord says that they don't hold that the sword in vain, you know, in terms of capital punishment or in terms of using the ultimate force to maintain law and order. And so these... Uh, uh, these uh, Principles the same in the New Testament. Whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. Uh, man is, this will be shocking for some, man is more valuable than animals. Now I do not say that man is better behaved than animals. Uh, there's, you can almost give me a dog any old time over about 90% of the population. But, but in terms of value in the eyes, of, because man was created in the image of God. And, and so the one was to be restored, the other resulted in death. And you shall have the same law for the stranger for, and for uh, one from your own country. So foreigners living in Israel or children of Israel themselves, this was the law no matter what. No double standard. And then Moses spoke to the children of Israel and they took outside of the camp him who had cursed and stoned him with stones. And so the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded uh, Moses. Chapter 25. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, it's God's land first and foremost, 
Then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. And, but in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. And you shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your un, untended vine, for it is the year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you, for your male and female servants, your hired man, and the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. So he gives them a law. I really like this law, by the way. And um, I think this is something that we should get in front of Congress and uh, the president right away on things. Every seventh year, God said, I want the, all of the land to have a rest. It was to be worked. It was to be sowed. It was to be cultivated. It was to be reaped. Use it hard. Use it fully as you want for six years. And then on the seventh year, it was to have a Sabbath. And the word Sabbath means a rest. So he's talking about this Sabbath year, this seventh year of a rest for the uh, Sabbath year for the land. He's talking about the purpose behind it is for the land uh, to to rest. And so that's what he wanted to do. So the Lord gives him three reasons for why he wanted the land to be uncultivated, just let it rest uh, every seventh year. Number one, verse five, to rest the land, just as God gave the people uh, a rest every seventh day of the week. He wanted the land to have a rest every uh, seventh year, six years producing and everything, seventh year, let it just kind of be there. And so today, you know, we use a lot of fertilizers and all to keep the land, you know, uh, with, with enough nutrients in the soil and these things and high productivity and all things that they didn't have necessarily in those days. And so just a chance to let the land and the soil kind of re, uh, regroup. And uh, so, they, uh, uh, so the soil wouldn't become depleted. And so the Lord wanted them to be good stewards of the land. This is a big hubbub right now, isn't there, uh, on taking care of the earth and is there global warming and all. And I'll probably work on a paper and have a definitive answer for mankind uh, sometime soon, make a movie and uh, become fabulously wealthy and probably win an Academy Award and and some other things and stuff, but I'm having to do it in my spare time, so uh, it might be a little while. It might be all solved by the time, in fact, I get done with this. So there's all this tension back and forth. And, I mean, can you have a concern for the earth and ecology and all and still be a Christian and not be a, you know, earth worshiper, things like that? We ought to be good stewards of the earth. I, I you know, I, do you know how much... I, my, our kids are grown. It's just me and my wife at home. Yeah, you know how much garbage we have? Boxes and boxes. She got about two ounces of something down at the bottom, you know, in terms of cereal. And the boxes like this. It kills me. I'm telling you, it kills me. So, but I know they got all this thing, and I don't know what it's all going to fix, and this marketing and all, they got to make it look like this on the shelf and all. I wish it was different, but they just had like a little plastic bag with your food right in there. Probably go, 
man, that doesn't look very good. Can't buy that and all without a big colorful box and all. But anyway, you know, we ought to take good care of the earth. We ought to recycle. And we should I, I don't think that I don't think we should drag our feet as Christians in this way. But we don't worship the earth. We know we know that the earth is is gonna get trashed by the devil before this is all done and all. But it doesn't mean we can't we don't know when that's going to happen. That we can't be, you know, a little bit green on this and, and, and be a good steward of the land. And so it was just a good way to take care of the land. Now, they could have uh, done the same thing with crop rotation, couldn't they? They've just said, well, all right, um, instead of taking all of the land in the nation of Israel out of circulation for an entire year, couldn't we do just like take a section out, each one of the, um, you know, eat, uh, a little bit, one-seventh of it each of the seven years and accomplish it that way? Well, they couldn't do it because the idea here was to give more than just rest to the land. It was also in order to rest the owner of the land. And, and there's a lot of pressure on being an owner and also the servants there in verse 6. It's good for their longevity and for their health. How would you like it if you, you got hired by a company and they said, by the way, we take the seventh year off? <laughs> Wait a second. I want to call all my friends and relatives. Do you have any other openings? You know, And it's a paid. It's a paid year. We'll see in just a moment. And uh, so... And then, not only in order to rest the servants and the owner, verse 7, in order to rest the animals. Good for their longevity, good for their health too. And then for, first and foremost, verse 2, and then he says a little more strongly in verse 23, it was to be a, every seven-year reminder to them, this land belongs to me. It belongs to me. I gave it to you. And that's what the Lord wanted them to be reminded of. And so they were to do this every seven years as an acknowledgement. Lord, we know this is your land. This is your nation. We're here for your purposes. And, uh, and so we're giving it this, this rest. You've given us this land secondarily, and we recognize that. And then what would happen is, how did people eat? Well, the crops that would just grow that didn't need to be, you know, with the orchards and all of the olives and almonds and all these things and the grapes, those would continue to grow and have a, 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 you know, a crop like they would normally have. But you couldn't harvest it. But anyone, everyone was on an equal plane. The owner of the field, the servant, everyone could go in in the course of a year, take what they, they wanted and they needed from the orchard. That would be very humbling for the owner of the land. But that's the idea. It's to make him realize that, you know, I just happen to own the land and these happen to be my servants to, to produce from the land, but I'm a man under authority too. I'm a man that has a boss over me and it's, it's God. This land belongs uh, to him. And so it would, it would speak to the owner of the equality of, of man in, in all of these things. Well, you look at it and say, wow, every seventh year off, that's terrific. And then if you have a practical side to you at all, the next question that you would think of is, who in the world is going to pay for it? And the Lord, as we'll see in verses 20 and 21, He promised to give them double the sixth year so they would have food then for the seventh. So you not only got a vacation every seventh year, but you got a paid vacation every seventh year. That's just fabulous. Now, it's interesting that the, in terms of the historical record, we have no record that the children of Israel ever obeyed the Sabbath year, not one year. So what? 
God gives them a commandment. They got a chance to take every seventh year off, and he gives them double on the sixth year to do it. Why in the world would a group of people blink at that and not take advantage of that? What in, 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 in the world, what temptation could there be so great that would cause them to pass up that kind of a rest? Same two things that tempt us from taking uh, the rest that God calls us to. Number one, greed. Greed. How many people lack rest because of greed? The idea was, wow, look at how much we got in the sixth year. What, why would we take a year off? Let's, let's farm this thing the seventh year too. Greed just takes over. Now there's another kind of person who is not tempted in the slightest by greed, but they're tempted by the second one. And not only is there greed that would move them, but fear. Oh, no. Yeah, God gave us a lot the sixth year, but you know you never know when the other shoe's going to drop and all, and you never know when hard times are coming, and you just got to work yourself like a dog every day and every, every year and all and, and because you never know when trouble's going to come. And so they just worked under the motivation of fear right through it. You see how? And boy, are we susceptible to the same thing. I'll speak for myself, but, but I, I know you're just like me. If it's not both, it's one or the other that we have a weakness to. And it robs us of the rest. So they passed this up for all these years, never did it, it one, one time. And the Lord declared in his word, for 490 years they did not give the land its Sabbath rest. And so the Lord just it looks like, wow, God doesn't care. I mean, if he hasn't spoken up in 490 years, he doesn't care at all. He did speak up. He allowed the Babylonians to come into Israel and take all of Israel captive, specifically the southern kingdom of Judah. Northern kingdom of Israel was already in captivity. He took them captive back to Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. And do you know how long he held them there? Seventy years. <laughs> The land got its Sabbath rest. You're just not gonna, nobody robs God of these things. If, if he wants a land to have a Sabbath year rest, then the land's going to get the Sabbath year rest. And, and, he, and he spoke about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 36. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of God by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And so the Lord said, I gave it to you, and I'm going to get what I wanted to have for the land. And you shall uh, count seven Sabbaths of years, verse 8, for yourself. Seven times seven, and the time of the, sev uh, and the, time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. So seven sevens, and the 49th year was a year of jubilee. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound. Trumpet was about joy. This is a tremendous thing that happened every... 49th year, the 50th year was a year, a year of jubilee. It would begin on the 10th day of the 10th month, on the day of atonement. So this year of jubilee had a spiritual tone to it. It was a time of being thankful to God for His uh, forgiveness, for access uh, to Him. And uh, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all of your land. Now here's what the, the overview of what 
the year of Jubilee was, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all of the land for all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee to you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is the jubilee, it shall be holy to you, you shall eat its produce from the field. And so it was to occur uh, in the fall, it was to begin in associated with, association with the, the Day of Atonement, and it would be a time when all of their land and all of their homes would re revert back to the original owners. We'll talk about this a little bit in just a moment. Any uh, it, child of Israel that had sold himself into slavery to other uh, Israelites or anyone living in the land uh, in order to pay off debts, they'd be freed and released from their bondage on the 50th uh, year. Again, on this 50th year, it was a Sabbath year, and so the land and the, and the people and the animals were to get rest. So every 50 years, you got two years in a row off. And uh, so that would mean, because he did it every 50 years, every, it, for the average person with a lifespan in those days, would get to experience a year of jubilee uh, one time, at least in, in their life. Nothing in the, in, in the record of the history of mankind where God uh, you know, made this kind of thing available to his people for rest and for joy and, and all. He gets into the issue, verse 13, of land ownership and what happened to land on the year of Jubilee. And in this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. So let's say you came to a place where um, you uh, ran into some financial difficulties in, in your life. And uh, you might be forced then to sell your land that the family owned, to sell it to somebody else and uh, that you owed the money to or that was lending you the money. But the person that you sold the land to, technically it was a lease because on the 50th year they would have to release that land uh, back to you where the debt would be forgiven, the land would return to the man and return to the original family. So technically land was never sold. It was just leased out until the year of, of Jubilee. The purpose for this is given in verses 14 and 17. It's just fabulous how wise it is. Um, the purpose was to prevent the oppression of one another. It was, it was to avoid a situation where a very, very small minority of, of people in the land owed, owned all of the land. And it's too easy for people that have that kind of power and those kind of resources to not then oppress the larger population by virtue of that and God knows that it would if it fell into that kind of a thing where because of an up and down uh, circumstance in the economy or an event in the world or whatever that uh, some handful of people would gobble everything up and then just use it in an unhealthy way to oppress the rest of the nation there in the um, uh, during the Great Depression the United States of America the banks ended up owning the United States of America just about because ev everyone was just 
foreclosed on and the land went back to the banks and all, the United States government stepped in and said, okay, this is not a healthy situation and devised a means by which that land would move back into private ownership. They didn't like what was there. There's one uh, nation in... in uh, 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 Europe, I remember we were driving through this, this nation, I'm not going to identify to you because I haven't looked up the facts on the internet to really know that they're true, um, but uh, the person was speaking, they were from uh, this country, and, uh, and it, be it begins with, a, well, so, it, but they had talked about, it was a younger person and all, and we're just talking about, you know, homes and these beautiful homes and different things and what about, and the younger person, so there's no hope of a younger person owning any, owning, typically owning property in, in the country. There's already 90% of the land owned by 5 or 10% uh, of the population, and it just simply did not move out of the family. So your greatest hope would be to rent a flat someplace, uh, buy a car, pump your money into that, and close or something. But to own land or to own something yourself just wasn't going to happen. And so uh, once that gets set in place in a country, it, short of a revolution, it's hard to get the thing turned around. And God didn't want that kind of concentration of, of, of wealth or land uh, because, again, he knew it would uh, end up in oppression. Now, what, would, what this allowed for was every Israelite family got to begin again every single generation. It kind of got a fresh start uh, regardless of what had happened in the past. So if you had a thing in your family and you were growing olives or whatever and, and it had uh, three or four bad years in a row and you, now we can't hold on to the property and we need some money and you would sell it, uh, you, it wouldn't wipe your family out forever. The land would come back into the family. Or, uh, I don't, you know, you can sometimes have... A, in a family tree, a, a diligent, you know, kind of patriarch, leader of the family, and another diligent, and then one generation, an idiot, uh, arises to the top. It just happens. I mean, you look in history, some of the czars and the different things and stuff, and just like, wow, can we jump a generation here? They just make terrible decisions, or they're just addicted to all kinds of, of things. Everything just gets thrown away and, and lost. And this protected having one bad generation in a family then set the course financially and the name of the people in the land for the rest of, of, of their history. And, and so very, very wise. You just have a catastrophe that kind of unseen for catastrophe that falls upon a family, they could uh, ultimately recover uh, from it. And so this was what happened with the land in, in, in the year of Jubilee. And now you price the value of the land because it would be returned uh, on, uh, on the year of Jubilee. It was uh, priced according to when you bought it uh, in relationship to that year of Jubilee. According to the number of years after the Jubilee you shall buy from your neighbor and according to the number of years of crops he shall sell to you. According to the multitude of years you shall increase its price and according to the fewer number of years you shall diminish its price for he sells to you according to the number of the years of the crops. And so if you were like at year 45 and the 50th year is coming and he wanted to sell you his land, well, you wouldn't give him very much for it because it's just going to turn back over in five years. If he were buying it in the third year, then you'd pay him a lot for it because you'd be able to use it for uh, 46 years or so. So everything was priced 
uh, not in terms of the value of the land, but in terms of, of that plus its proximity to the year of Jubilee. And therefore you shall not oppress, here again is the reason for it, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Then talking, <clears throat> you shall, uh, verse 18, you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them, and you will dwell in the land in safety, and then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year since we shall not sow nor gather uh, in our produce. So again, he's, he knows that some people are going to say, wow, you're giving us this seventh year off and then two years off on the, on the year of Jubilee. How are we going to eat? Then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year. It shall bring forth produce enough for three years on the year of Jubilee and you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth, until its produce uh, comes in and you shall eat of the old harvest. So it was a paid vacation. Time to just seek the Lord and praise Him for how good He is. The land shall not be sold permanently. Here's the reason. The land is mine. And this is how I want it to be handled. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm the person here that owns all this. You're strangers and pilgrims, uh, sojourners, even as landowners. And in all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. Now he goes on and talks about homes that are sold to one another during, uh, because of poverty and what happens on the year of Jubilee that would be returned back to the family. If one of your family becomes poor and has sold some possession, specifically a home, in order to raise money to continue to feed the family. And if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may, may redeem what his brother sold. Or if a man has no one to redeem it, but he himself uh, becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale, restore the remainder of the land to whom he sold it, that he may return uh, to his possession. But if he's not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee, and in the Jubilee it shall be released, and the home then would return to his possession. So if you sold land to somebody out of a dire need, a, a rich relative or someone that had the money could step in and go to the person and say, a relative, a kinsman, uh, a blood relative, I, he could come in and say, has sold you this land, I want to come in and pay off his debt and have the land come back into the family. The only one that could do that was a blood relative. And he's known as a near kinsman in the New King James. In the Old King James, he's known as a kinsman redeemer. And the word that's used for him in the original is a goel. And, and, and uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. We're, we're moving right along here. So, uh, so he could step in and redeem the land. Or the guy had to sell in order to get some money to keep everyone fed. But then things turned around for him. He, he uh, came into some money or through hard work or whatever. He could reapproach the person he sold the, the land to and uh, redeem it himself. If nothing like that happened, it always returned on the 50th year. And if a man sells a house, there was an exception here uh, to the house. If a man sells a house in a walled city, 
then he may redeem it within a whole year after it's sold. But if he doesn't redeem it within the full year, uh, within a full year he may redeem it. But if it is not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong permanently to him who bought it throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the jubilee. And so uh, here is a situation where a, uh, a person who sold a house in a city a city, uh, a house in a walled city would have been much more valuable and it probably meant that you've got industry, ways of making money, jobs in that city that wasn't dependent upon a person owning a house in the city. And so the Lord allowed uh, for that to transfer uh, permanently uh, inside of a year if a person did not re-redeem it. However, the houses of the villages which have no walls around them, a house that's out in the countryside, shall be counted as the fields uh, of the country. They may be redeemed and they shall uh, be released in the jubilee. So any other home was released the 50th year. Nevertheless, the cities of the Levites and the houses of the cities of their possession, the Levites may redeem at any time. And so the Levites were the priestly tribe, uh, or uh, assigned to the service of the um, uh, uh, of, uh, uh, you know of the spiritual things of the Lord, they were given instead of a section of land, they were given forty eight cities in the land, and so if they sold a house that was in their possession they didn 't have they could redeem it any time they wanted to. God was very protective of of property not moving out of the hands of the Levites. The typical reason that the Levites would ever sell land would be because the people ceased to give to God and then made things very, very uh, thin for, for the Levites. And so he gives them a little added protection. And if a man purchases a house from the Levites, then the house that was sold in the city of his possession shall be released in the Jubilee for the houses in the cities of the Levites or their possession among the children of Israel. So talking about homes in the city, everyone else lost theirs after a year to the buyer, but the Levites never lost it. It was, it was always returned back to them. But the fields of the common land of their cities may not be sold, for it is their perpetual uh, possession. So a different set of laws for the Levites. And if one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Take no usury. Don't take advantage of the situation or interest from him. But fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury nor lend him your food for profit. So God knows people pretty well, doesn't he? I mean, most people would look and say, gosh, my brother is... Uh, fallen into hard times and he's working hard and a couple of things just didn't go his way and all. We're going to take him in and make sure that he's fed and clothed and taken care of. But God knew there would be a certain kind of person that would look and say, all right, you can come in here, but you were going to, uh, I'm going to not only keep you fed and, and ch they could charge you for the food and that kind of thing. A person should earn their keep, as we'll see in a moment, but you couldn't take advantage of it and say, yeah, I'll give it to you, but it's going to be a 30% interest too, and then basically turn them into a slave. You weren't supposed to take advantage of people's 
you know, difficult situation to enrich yourself. Uh, God didn't do it to them, and then we aren't supposed to do it to others. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, so one Jew selling himself to another Jew, you shall not compel him to serve you as a slave. As a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. And then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and and shall return to his own family. He shall return to the possession of his fathers. Here's the reason why. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. These people belong to me. I don't want you taking advantage of my People And he knew that some people would. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him with rigor, but you shall fear your God. And to take advantage of the situation and work him to death God, would be an indication of an absence of the fear of God. And as for your male and female servants or slaves whom you have from the nations that are around you, from them you may buy male and female slaves. Moreover, you may buy the children of the strangers, Gentiles, who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which, shall be, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property. And you, shall, you may take them as an inheritance for your children after you as in, to inherit them as a possession and they shall be your permanent slaves. But regarding your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over one another with rigor. So the Lord allowed slavery for the Jews of of Gentiles, but not of their fellow uh, Jew. I don't want to get into a big slavery thing here tonight because I'm already out of time. But, (laughs) just for a moment, um, the uh, slavery is not condemned in the Old Testament. And I think we, we... it isn't condemned as being outlawed. And we have to be careful. I mean, we're even in the middle of a situation as a nation where we're kind of uh, uh, maybe a little bit naive in thinking that we can turn every country of the world into a democracy, no matter what their religions are or their culture or their history or uh, their preferences and, and all. And we're not going to be that successful doing that uh, everywhere. Uh, The world is what it is in a lot of places. And in those days, uh, uh, in in ancient times, to be a slave was basically how they picked up employees and and all. And and sometimes not to be uh, purchased as a slave into a good situation. And God is very strict with the Jews on how they were to treat slaves that were, uh, uh, were a part of their uh, family. They were to be treated as family. So he puts these protections around it. But to go in and say, all slavery is out. There's none of that. No more. Slavery was a very common. Fifty million slaves in the Roman Empire at the time of, of Jesus. And he didn't step up and make it his campaign to ban slavery. He does it, it did it kind of a different way. He knew that you just have to establish the body of Christ in the world, the advancement of his teaching and what he does in human lives, and the slavery thing will take care of itself. It will ultimately go by the wayside in any country that is, is dominated and influenced by Jesus and by the New Testament, of course, and that's what we see 
uh, around the world. But to step sometimes in and say, well, it should be this and it should have all been out, uh, outlawed could have resulted in tens of millions of people starving to death because, you know, who could pick them up and change the whole thing and all. So Paul wrote uh, to the church and he said, listen, if you're a Christian and you're a slave, uh, if you can gain your freedom, gain it. Go for it. But if you can't, then live for Christ in that context. And in the, in the bigger s- scheme of things, God knew that he'd end up overthrowing the whole institution, again, wherever the gospel would, uh, would advance. Now, if a sojourner or a stranger, talking about a Gentile living in the land of Israel, close to you becomes rich... And one of your brethren, uh, a Jew, who uh, dwells by him becomes poor and sells himself to that stranger or sojourner close to you for money or, or to a member of the stranger's family. After he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him. So here I am, I fall into uh, difficult circumstances. I sell myself to someone outside of the family for some money. I'll work for you until the, the year of Jubilee and uh, in order for you to provide this for my family and all. That, that could be turned around if one of his brothers may redeem him. So we're talking about a blood relative or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who is near of kin to him in his family may redeem him, or if he is able, he may redeem himself. And thus he shall reckon with him who bought him. The price of his release shall be according to the number of years from the year that he was sold until the year of Jubilee. It shall be according to the time of a hired servant for him." And if there are many years remaining, according to them, he shall repay the price of his redemption from the money with which he was bought. And if there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, then he shall reckon with him, bargain on the basis of that. And according to the years, he shall repay him the price of redemption. And he shall be with him as a yearly hired servant, and he shall, as, as he would be redeemed, the Jewish brother would redeem his Jewish relative, he shall be with him now as a yearly hired servant. He shall not rule him with vigor uh, over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed in those years, then he shall be released in the year of Jubilee, he and his children with him. Even uh, if he was sold uh, by uh, himself into uh, Gentile hands, they still had to honor the year of Jubilee for the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. It's my land. This is how I want it treated. These are my people. This is how I want them treated. Now let me close with this. In all of this we have the law of the kinsman redeemer where if a person fell on hard times and they sold themselves into slavery or bondage in order to gain some, some resources, they could be purchased out of that slavery by a kinsman redeemer or a near kinsman or a goel. And, uh, and, and so this was the, uh, a beautiful law of the kinsman rede- redeemer. It's, uh, the picture, best picture of it is in the 
a book of Ruth, which we'll look at it a little more in depth when we get there because Boaz redeems Ruth and the land belonging to her because he was a blood relative and he was able to become a kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer, there were four requirements of, of a goel. First of all, the redeemer had to be a near kinsman. That is, he needed to be related by blood. Sometimes people wonder why it was necessary for Jesus to be born into the world. Why did he have to take on human flesh and, in order to provide salvation for us? Well, there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, for example, he couldn't, have, uh, couldn't die as God, and we needed someone to die for our sins. But, but one reason was in order to fulfill the requirement of the kinsman redeemer. He re is able to redeem us from our sin because he was related to us by blood. And that was a requirement in the Old Testament. Apostle Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 4, verse 3. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. He's talking in Old Testament language, kinsman redeemer language there. The second requirement of a kinsman redeemer is that he had to be free himself. And uh, for Jesus and on the spiritual application, uh, the only way he could redeem us and save us from our sin was to be free from the curse of sin himself. And so you can't redeem somebody from a debt if you are in, in the same debt as they are. And that's why no mere man could uh, be the savior of, of the rest of fallen man. Jesus was able to redeem us from the debt of sin because he was not indebted to sin himself. For he, that is, the Bible says, for he, that is the Father, made him Jesus who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, it's kinsman redeemer language. Number three, the kinsman redeemer had to also have the price of redemption. And only Jesus had the price of redemption in order to redeem us from the consequences of the fall. Peter put it this way, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He's the only one that had the price to redeem us from our sin. And then finally, number four, the Redeemer always had to perform his work of redemption willingly. Nobody could go to a relative and say, you have to redeem me out of my slavery. That was something that he did or he didn't do on the basis of his own uh, willingness. And Jesus, of course, was willing. Boaz was willing to, related to Ruth. A closer kinsman redeemer was unwilling, if uh, you're familiar with the story. But Jesus became our redeemer because of his willingness to buy us out of our bondage. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it again. 
He said, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And so Jesus fulfilled this beautiful picture of the kinsman redeemer and the higher way, the spiritual way, undoing the worst real estate transaction in the history of the world uh, between Adam and Eve and the devil. And uh, so nothing is worse than what happened way back when, even in today's market. And the Lord came in and is a kinsman redeemer and has found a way to purchase us out of all of the bondage associated with that. Well, let's stand together so I can get you out of here before 10 o'clock.